You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Years ago, I was working on a book called Skipping Towards Gamora about the seven deadly sins in America, and for anger, one of the seven deadly sins, I went to Texas and shot a gun. I've never really held a gun, never shot a gun in my life, but I went to a f- shooting range in Plano, Texas, and hired a gun shooting coach and shot a gun. And it was kind of a crazy day because at the end of this gun shooting thing that I did, what I learned about myself was I was really good at it. I was really, really good at sticking my arm out and pointing a gun at a thing and shooting that thing. I kept getting bullseyes. I was a really good shot. And at the end of the day, this big old Texas good old boy who was my gun coach clapped me on the back and said, son, you're natural, which is not something I get called in Texas or anywhere close to Texas very often. So I'll take it. And what I came away with was, you know, you reach a certain age, stage of life where you stop doing things that you've never done before. You stop doing new things. So you you, you stop finding sort of innate uh, hardwired talents that you happen to possess because you're not just out there trying shit like you are when you're young. And so who knew? I was a really good shot. As I wrote in Skipping Towards Gamora, it would be like Charlton Heston, who was still alive at the time, at his advanced age, discovering that he gives a really wicked blowjob. But, you know, he wasn't giving blowjobs, so he never found that out. But I felt like Charlton Heston finding out he gave a great blowjob when I found out I was a really good shot. I had that same feeling this weekend when I discovered a, a new skill, something I was really good at. I went to the Seattle Seahawks championship for their division whatever game this weekend, and they won, and I was really good at it. I was really good at sitting there watching football, which is not something I ever thought I would be really good at. Uh, It helped that I was in a luxury suite at the invitation of Luke Burbank, who is the host of the awesome podcast, Too Beautiful to Live, and you should be listening to that one too. Uh, He invited me, and I went with my, my husband, Terry, and we sat in this booth, and we drank champagne and looked out at the proles and the helots and the stands below us and watched the game and we were good at watching the game i mean you just have to sit there and eat and drink and i'm good at that generally i've been good at that for a long time but i never thought i would be good at that watching a football game because there are certain things you just don't do when you're gay and i know that now i'm gonna get calls from gay people who are sports fans who've been doing this all their lives but when you're the kind of gay i am you just don't do this. You don't watch football games. And maybe you would have enjoyed it, but you sort of, you know, early in life before you can tell people that you suck dick, you tell people that in different kinds of code. Like you say to your straight brothers, I hate football. When what you really wanted to say to them is, I hate pussy. Because they're going pussy crazy and they're adolescent boys and they're adolescent boy and they have girlfriends and they're just girl crazy and you're not. And you can't tell them that you're not like them that way, so you tell them that you're not like them in other ways to you know, draw a line between who you are and who they are. So you say, I hate football. You storm out of the house whenever they turn on the television and watch football. But I actually really enjoyed watching all those men smash into each other. Who knew that that would be a thing that I would enjoy? While I was sitting there, actually, coincidentally enough, in this booth watching this game, I scrolled through my Twitter feed and I found a tweet from some right-wing nutjob asshole Uh, who had found a piece I'd written a month and a half ago uh, where I reviewed Sarah Palin's 
idiotic new book. I read it, or a part of it. I read more of Sarah Palin's idiotic new Christmas book than Sarah Palin wrote, and then I reviewed that. Um, and this person was very upset about something I said at the end of my review, which was to Sarah Palin directly, I hope you choke on your Christmas pastry. Now, hope you choke doesn't mean I want you to die. You know, you, it's an expression. Oh, drop dead. Hope you choke. Not choke to death. Just choke and Heimlich and fine, but I hope you choke. But I want Sarah Palin to live a long life because the more that woman runs her mouth in public, the better it is for our side. Because the more... Republicanism and conservatism is associated with just fucking idiocy and imbecility, the better it is for our side. We are now at historic lows, as a poll that came out last week proved, historic lows for people identifying as Republicans. Sarah Palin, you helped to build that. Do I want Sarah Palin to die? No, I want Sarah Palin to keep talking and hiring people to write books for her forever. It's good for my side. But what was really funny about this tweet was this person described me as an arch-heterophobe. There's this meme or this idea that right-wing nutjobs are promoting about me that I hate straight people. Which is really funny because most of my listeners are straight. Most of my readers are straight. Most of the people whose hands I hold and tell them it'll be all right here on the podcast are straight. I love straight people. I really do. And I was in this booth at the Seahawks game with probably 20 other straight people eating and drinking and everybody getting along just fine. And the straight guys sort of taking Terry and I under their wing and teaching us about football and saying things like he found that guy wide open. So we had some common ground there. That was an expression I'd heard before, not in the context of a touchdown. But, you know, I've heard that exact expression before. And so we had a laugh. We joked around. Me and the straight guys, the straight guys and Terry, we all had fun. We concord. We all got along great. So this idea that straight people and gay people, we can't get along. It just isn't true. We can get along. It is an innate skill, I think, that we all possess. So if you're on Twitter and you see me described as a heterophobe, you, of course, as a listener, you know that I'm not a heterophobe. I'm squicked out by straight sex. I don't understand how anyone could do that. And, you know, some straight people who are of goodwill and supportive of LGBT civil equality, of course, are squicked out by gay sex. And that's your right. We're all allowed to be. We can celebrate and squick at the same time as I do. But I don't hate you, straight people. If you saw someone on Twitter saying that I hate you, I don't hate you. I love you. And I love football. So long as I can sit in a luxury skybox and drink champagne and wait for the dessert trolley to come around again. You have no idea how, like, ridiculously bitch-ass swank it was up there. Or you have some idea if you were following me on Twitter during the Seahawks game because I was tweeting about it. Dessert trolley cart coming around and a basket full of tampons and tiny mouthwash bottles in the luxury bathrooms. Just saying. Anyway, I'm not used to talking about sports. I'm not sure how to wrap this fucking thing up. But the Seahawks, they won a game and now they're going to... Another game, the Super Bowl, where they would try to win. Ironically enough, the two teams I now know in the Super Bowl, one being the Seattle Seahawks and the other being the Denver Broncos, and I wasn't aware that Denver had a football team until yesterday, uh, both from states with legal pot. So this is redefining bowl in Super Bowl. This is really the Super Bowl. One state has marriage equality. That is Washington State, home of the Seattle Seahawks. One state doesn't. 
Colorado, come on, catch up. So we'll see who God favors. But it is a thing. Both teams going to the Super Bowl, legal pot. I hope they talk about that during the uh, off-color commentary. If they don't, I will on Twitter because I think I think for the first time in a decade or more, I am going to watch the Super Bowl. How could I be heterophobic if I'm going to sit down and watch the Super Bowl? I'm not afraid of straight people. I love you guys. That's why I'm going to take your questions starting now. Hi, Dan. I am a 37-year-old male straight person with an issue I'd like to get your advice on. Shortly after my divorce, I started seeing somebody who I had always wanted to date in college and never had a chance to. I idolized her. I felt she was out of my league. Um, I contacted her, and uh, she made herself available. She happened to have been in a relationship, which I basically ended. So I started seeing her, and and, uh, it was pretty infrequent, once or or twice a week. Um, Things got serious. She started calling me her girlfriend. About a month or two after we started seeing each other, I began seeing hints uh, that she had at least a, you know, strong emotional friend uh, who she worked with. She said, no, no, no. I kind of thought that it was going on. I found out about four months after it had happened uh, that she was sleeping with that person. She slept with him twice. I uh, Now the relationship has grown to the point where she wants to get married. She talks about having a child with me. She loves me. She can't talk about the incidents. Uh, she cries constantly if it's brought up. She seems like she is remorseful, but I can't get it out of my head. Um, and I don't want to throw the relationship away necessarily. Um, it would be a blended family situation. I have kids. She has kids that are at the same age. They have met. It's tricky. Um, and I don't feel equipped to, uh, to understand what you know, what what I can and can't handle in terms of the, the psychology of me uh, loving her and telling her I love her and thinking of her as my girlfriend and her doing the same while that was going on, <clears throat> and then to have her lie for months after when I questioned her about it, it it's something that I I probably would need to uh, seek either uh, couple counseling or individual counseling for I think, but as a starting point I wanted to hear if you might be able to talk about it a little bit. And uh, maybe just nudge me in the right direction. If you feel like this is something that people like me just can't get over, then I should cut it off. Or if it's uh, if it's something that I should look for the greater good and the, the blending of the family, then go from there. Um, but you know, primarily, I just wanted to get your expertise. Funny you should ask me. And I mean that. It's kind of funny you should ask me. Because if you're a listener to the podcast, you probably know what I'm going to say. So I'm thinking on some level, you want me to kick you in the ass and tell you to stop obsessing about this and to tell you, you want someone to tell you that this is really not that big a fucking deal. The outset of your relationship, she was still weighing her options and hadn't chose, 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 chose you yet exclusively perhaps and she fucked somebody else and you can obsess about that forever. You can go into couples counseling and you can pick at that scab and keep that wound open and fresh and bloody eternally or you can look at her and think the price of admission that I have to pay to be with this person that I love that I obsessed about for years is to swallow this one piece of shit and forget about it and let it go and forgive her. And accept that life is long and it is messy. You're divorced. She's divorced. You have kids from your previous marriage. She has kids from her previous marriage. Shit is messy. Adult life is 
messy and complicated and people are not perfect. And she fucked somebody else. And so fucking what? She's fucking you now. She's with you now. She feels obviously terrible about this. And maybe she cries because she feels so fucking guilty. Or maybe she cries because what she sees in your eyes whenever it comes up is that you can't ever move past this. That when you look at her, you see a two-timing whore or whatever it is that you see when you look at her and you think about the fact that she fucked somebody else. She has kids with other people. You know she's fucked other people in the past, right? Before you came along. And so she fucked somebody else a little bit after you came along and then decided you were the person that she wanted to be with and that ended. And she ended that. Can't you take that fucking yes for an answer? Can't you take that I choose you for an answer? If you can't take that for an answer, then maybe you should fucking end this. Maybe that would be the kind thing to do. Just go look at her when she's asleep and decide if having her in your life and the occasional moments of flashing on that, fucking somebody else once or twice when you first got together and the pain that brings you, if that pain, those moments of pain are greater than the the pain you will feel when she is out of your life, when this relationship is no longer yours and then make your fucking choice and shit or get off her face and end it if you can't forgive her for that and let this be a lesson to folks you know sometimes it's better just not to know sometimes it's better never to find out sometimes it's better not to ask the question that if you get the honest answer it will destroy your ability to love someone sometimes you have to love the lie version, the Potemkin village version of the person that you're with. You have to be invested in the person that you believe them to be and the person that they would like to be for you and you don't want to go poking around behind the scenery too much because you can know too much and it can ruin it for you. So caller, you know, ask yourself and other listeners, think about this. Like what if you'd never found out? What if she could have successfully lied to you and stuffed that ill-advised fucking around at the beginning of your relationship down the memory hole and you had never discovered it and she never gave it away and you didn't have to live with this pain and she didn't have to live with the tears? Wouldn't it have been better for everybody? Sometimes it is better for everybody. Sometimes honesty is not the best policy. Relationships are not fucking depositions. You do not have to answer every question truthfully. Some shit you swallow. Anyway, caller, make up your mind. The pain of the affair or the pain of her out of your life, which is greater? Pick one, make your move, and then go find somebody else and start this process all over again. Right? Because that's what will happen. You go find somebody else and start this process all over again and maybe you'll find out five years into that relationship that when you first got together, she was dating two other guys, as people do when they first get together. People are not necessarily exclusive out of the gate. So there's no guarantees that if you leave this woman that the same or worse may happen to you in the future with another partner. Weigh that in the balance too before you make your move. Hi, Dan. My question is about my current boyfriend. I live with him and we've been together for – going on seven months so it's really soon and we moved in really quickly together so um, I found a couple months ago that he was putting ads out on Craigslist as well as making uh, plenty of fish account and whatever else that I 
whatever else that could possibly be out there. Called him on it, told him, he apologized, everything. We worked out, we moved on. Except last night, I had the password to his Craigslist account, and I went on there, and I saw his previous postings, and there was one about seven months ago, and he was looking to be with a transgender, transsexual, and it was something that he really wanted, like he was into. And I looked back in the history, and there had been many, many, several postings about him uh, looking to have sex with um, and even ongoing relations with a transsexual, transgender. I have no problem with that whatsoever, you know, to each their own, but I feel confused. I basically don't know what this means. Is he straight? Is he he's into trannies? Um, I don't know if that's even the correct word for it. Basically, I just feel confused and lost and sort of lied to, and I feel like he deceived me. I don't know if that's the right way to feel or not. So I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go from here. I haven't said anything to him. He's not going to say anything to me. I need to know what to do. Did he deceive you or did he just not tell you everything about his erotics? Um, If he was cheating on you, if he was, if you guys had an exclusive sexual commitment to one another and he was soliciting sex online from other people, whatever they are, however they identify, wherever they fall along the gender spectrum, then that wasn't okay. But the fact that he's a straight guy who's attracted to trans women, and that's what we call them, we will not call them trannies, that is not allowed or acceptable, please eliminate that from your vocabulary or the glitter will rain upon you, Uh, doesn't mean he's not a straight guy. Gay guys generally typically aren't into trans women and usually the trans women that straight guys are seeking out on Craigslist and other sites are trans women who still have their penises. There are straight guys out there who are kind of into dick but not into dudes at all. And the idea of a dick and being able to play with another dick that is attached to a woman is appealing. It's not appealing to gay men. So a lot of women when they find out that their boyfriend or husband has been looking at porn or seeking out escorts who are trans women, porn that features trans women, escorts who are trans women, get very paranoid that, oh my God, this means my boyfriend or husband is gay because only a gay guy could do that. Gay guys don't do that. Trans women who are sex workers service almost exclusively a straight, identified male clientele. Is your partner, your boyfriend, 100,000% straight? I guess not. There's a little sliver of like dick desire in there. And a dick attached to a woman, a woman's dick, that works for him. Stick pussy, it was once called in a very early Savage Love letter. Not my term. I didn't call it that. Somebody wrote to me, called it that. So what do you do? You now know this. You can't unknow it. But just I need you to know that this doesn't mean he's not attracted to you also. This doesn't mean that he's not primarily and even overwhelmingly attracted to women who have vaginas and labia and all that stuff you brought to the relationship in your panties, right? Don't look at those ads and think he can't possibly be attracted to me or my body or my pussy or who I am if he's into that. If he's into that, it's actually a pretty good indication that he is also and primarily into what you got. So the 
deal for you now is you need to decide whether you can live with this, whether you can be with somebody who has also this desire on top of his desire for you. He's a little more complicated sexually than some other partners perhaps might be or your next partner will be until you discover otherwise, right? Because you can get with somebody who seems totally fine and normal because you can get with the next just like the previous car. You can get with your next partner and your next partner could have other issues or the same issue you just don't know, right? That said, you can't unknow what you know. I would talk to him about it and approach it from a, an informed place where you know that this doesn't mean that he's gay. You're not asking if he's gay. You're not, you're not suggesting that he couldn't possibly be attracted to you if he's into this. But what does this mean that he's into this? And what does it mean that he's been seeking it out while you guys are in what's supposed to be a sexually exclusive relationship? And if he's been getting with sex workers or anyone else, is he being safe? When was the last time he tested? Can we do this from an honest place? Is there a way to incorporate this desire into our relationship? Or is this something walled off and separate for you that you don't even want me to know about? But if this is a part of your sexuality, this is a part of your sexual makeup, I have a right to A, be safe emotionally and physically in this relationship and B, I have a right to some informed consent. I have a right to some peripheral involvement. I have a right to not have a ton of secrets and lies swirling around and making me paranoid. So now that this is on the table, let's have it on the table. And if you can wrap your head around it, if he can have you and have this once or twice in his life too. Most straight guys who seek this out seek it out once or twice. They conduct their dick experiments. They get that dick curiosity satisfied and then they're back on and in and around and face first with pussy. So I'd have that convo with him. Why not? You know what you know and you can't unknow it and he's blown at this point what he's blown and he can't unblow it. So you might as well have a conversation about it. Hello, I am a 28-year-old homosexual man in a very large East Coast city. I am recently uh, out, only within about a year and a half. And one thing I've noticed about my dating track record in this past year and a half is that whenever I actually feel some kind of connection or desire to really be with a man, it's when he's in his 40s. Um, and I'm just wondering, is this common? I, I personally don't feel I have any issues with my father, and I and I don't ever see these as like daddy-son type things, I just find myself attracted to men. And and every now and again, there's a guy in his 20s or his 30s who I find myself attracted to. But but really, it's guys in their 40s that seem to be the most attractive. And maybe it's stability, maybe it's the way they live their life. Or I'm, I'm really not entirely sure. But even guys who I think, yes, okay, good, this guy's for sure in his 30s. And I get to know him, and he winds up being in his 40s. Is this common for someone who's newly out or out at a later age? Um, is it something to do with my years of reparative therapy that I did to quote unquote, make me straight, which would probably explain why I came out so late. But I'm just, I'm just wondering if this, if this is common at all. The answer is obvious. The reason you're attracted to men in their forties is because we're awesome. Hello. Uh, this is a why ask why problem. You're into what you're into. And you can look back through your life and try to identify, you know, coming out later in life or reparative therapy or something about your relationship with your father as the whatever it is that explains who you are sexually now, but you really can't know. And there's a lot of, you know, bullshit data mining that people do with their sexualities and their histories to explain away who they are. 
And the hilarious thing is, and the, the example I always give is when someone's into spanking, they'll they'll stand there and tell you at a spanking party that they're into spanking because they were spanked as a child and they formed all these erotic associations, blah, 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 and they're still acting out on it and it creeps them out a little bit. And this is, of course, what causes a spanking fetish is to have been spanked as a child. And standing right next to that spanky who's into spanking because they were spanked as a child is someone who will tell you the exact opposite, that they're into spanking because they weren't spanked as a child and it all seemed very alluring and it didn't happen to them. They were fascinated by it and la, la, la. So that's what creates a spanking fetishist is to not be spanked as a child. So why are you into older guys? Well, maybe it's because – you have daddy issues. Maybe it's because you came out later in life. But you know what? You'll meet guys your age who are attracted to guys in their 30s and 40s, sometimes even older, who don't have any daddy issues, who came out when they were 15 years old. You just can't know. So the question for you and for anybody who's struggling with why am I into what I'm into is why are you asking yourself that question? The real question is am I going after what I want that makes me happy in a responsible way where I'm not harming myself, I'm not harming anyone else, is everybody benefiting from this? You know, I dating guys who are good and nice and kind and decent and hot and sexy and whatever else that I'm looking for? Uh, are my relationships harming me? Are they harming the people that I'm in relationship with? Am I dating assholes? Am I an asshole? Those are the questions you need to ask yourself, not why am I into what I'm into? Because there really is no answer for that because we don't know and there's no way to figure it out. So you are 20-something, you're into guys in their 40s because obviously we're awesome, and you should go out there and date them. And finally, of course, I really don't want to dig too deeply into this because I wouldn't want to accidentally say something that cured you of this desire for 40-something. I would no, – none of my 40-something gay male friends would speak to me if I cured you of your desire to suck our dicks. So I'm just going to leave this alone. Why ask why? This is a good thing. We're going to leave it there. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight female living in the Midwest. Um, I'm in a long-term relationship, and I have a question about rough sex. So recently, um, my boyfriend and I have been experimenting with rougher sex, very, very light BDSM, um, things like that, and it's been awesome. We've both been really into it. Um, it was sort of at my prompting, but we've been having way more sex. Sex has been better. Um, and overall, it's been great. Um, the one issue is I've had a, a longstanding problem with self-injury. Um, and he's been really supportive about that, you know, has known about it the whole time and been really helpful. Um, and for the most part, it's not something I do anymore. I haven't cut regularly in years and I occasionally slip up, um, but it's not really a part of my life. Um, the one thing is that he seems to be really relating it now that we're having rougher sex um, back to that. So he's expressed concerns. Um, he seems sort of worried that I'm somehow using him in the same way um, that I would have used cutting and has gone so far as to say things like, I don't want to be a proxy for a razor blade. Um, he seems really worried about actually hurting me and has said that he worries that I won't tell him if I'm actually hurt, if he's actually hurting me. I nothing we're doing could actually really hurt me. Um, it's nothing too serious. And I also don't think that it's going to like trigger any of my issues. Um, but I am wondering that how I can, how I can support him. So, um, first off, sort of what my responsibility is in terms of telling him if things hurt, um, where that line needs to be drawn. Cause I don't want to get in a situation where I'm down with something 
that's painful, but in some ways it's non-consensual because he doesn't want to hurt me because um, that feels weird. But I also want to keep having the awesome sex that we're having. Um, and then also, if you know of any resources or um, if you have any advice just sort of about how I can be supportive and how I can talk to him about it um, and sort of reassure him that um, he's not in some way contributing to those old issues or playing into them or something like that. Um, most of what I've found online has been sort of self-injury message board stuff, and I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole um, and otherwise sort of references to the movie Secretary, which is great, but not always helpful. Um, so I would love any advice that you have. Thanks a lot. I've written about cutting uh, a few times, but it's not my area of expertise. But from what I've read and what I've learned about it, that you know, it is about externalizing an internal pain. It is about uh, control and control issues. It is about uh, in some ways drawing attention to yourself and attention to your pain. And what I know of BDSM is that there is no attention whore like a bottom. You know, The idea that a lot of people, a misconception a lot of people have from outside the S&M scene is that it's the tops who are in charge and in control. And it really isn't. It is the bottoms uh, who are in charge and in control. They write, <laughs> they write their own tickets. They write their own scenes. Um, and often what's going on in S&M is, as in your relationship, caller, is the top is meeting a certain need of the bottom for this kind of what? Control issues being wrestled with, the externalization perhaps of internal pain and attention whoring. So I would – you know, if I were you, I would regard perhaps this moving on to BDSM as a, a healthy shift away from meeting some of the same needs that the cutting may have met for you when you were younger, meeting those needs now in a different way, making boner lemonade out of some particularly distressing shitty ass lemons, right? And, and so maybe that's an, a, a net positive, that said, and I am not a shrink and you should talk this over with your counselor. If I were your boyfriend, I would be worried because you are still cutting. It is very telling that you say, I've given it up for the most part. I haven't cut regularly in a long time. If I were your boyfriend and we were doing these things sexually that involved a loss of control or seemingly so for you and pain and whatever else and the cutting was still going on, I might see the BDSM as of a piece with that own – as of a piece with that self-abuse, self-mutilation that you continue to engage in. So perhaps you need to talk these issues over with a shrink. Also, while you're having this conversation and you're thinking about these things, you can look up a study that was conducted at Tilburg University in the Netherlands, published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, where they looked at the mental health of a thousand regular and hardcore BDSM players, and they found them, these people who are active, in the BDSM scene and the community to have better mental health profiles than the control group, than just an average group of non-kinksters who were selected. People into BDSM who are doing it were less neurotic, more extroverted, more open to new experiences, more conscientious, less sensitive to rejection, and had a higher sense of well-being. Well, there a lot of that's not just like take somebody who's average or not happy and beat the fuck out of them in an S&M context and you will get a happy, healthy, well-adjusted person. These are people who have thought about their desires, walked with them, lived with them and figured out a way to incorporate them into their lives uh, as a healthy aspect of their sexual expression. So these are healthy people to begin with if they're active and engaged and involved and self-actualized sexually in this way. But there's nothing you can reassure your boyfriend 
antithetical about mental health, as the study shows, and being into BDSM. All that said, you're still cutting. That is a problem. If you don't want your boyfriend to be concerned about the cutting, it needs to stop entirely. If you want to enjoy rough or painful sex without your boyfriend having a meltdown about whether this is just another point on this continuum of self-abuse or self-mutilation on your part, the cutting needs to stop. Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old straight male. Growing up, I watched a lot of porn and jerked off a lot. And um, once I started having sex with girls, I started noticing that I wasn't able to maintain an erection and I would get an awful lot of pre-com and sometimes uh, premature premature ejaculation. So when I was in my early 20s, I went to the doctor because I thought there was something wrong with me. I couldn't keep it up. Um, I know I was turned on a lot. The doctor said there's nothing wrong with me, um, but he did give me some Cialis to take. So I took some Cialis and it worked like a charm. So over the past few years, I've taken it on and off um, when I'm with some girls. But in the past year or so, I started taking over-the-counter supplements that work just as well. And I was just wondering what the long-term side effects of those of those are, like how bad this is for me if I'm taking it once or twice a week. Um, some of the pills I take, you know, last for three or four days. You know, to be honest, it's made my sex life improve a thousand percent. And I just want to know if there's bad side effects to this because I really don't want to stop taking them. I love your show. Keep doing what you're doing. You've changed my views on sex totally, and I love what you do. Thanks for loving the show. Unfortunately, I, I don't have these powers of omniscience or clairvoyance where I can tell you what the side effects are for the unnamed supplements that you are taking. I have no fucking idea. Most of those over-the-counter uh, boner pills that get sold via random emails from Nigeria and uh, you know bullshit late-night television commercials um, are herbs and this and that and perhaps some stimulants, uh, some natural stimulants, caffeines and whatever else. And they're not really doing anything. Uh, except maybe giving you sort of a jazzy, herby flavor beat, I guess. But I do think what they do, and maybe that they're doing for you, uh, is giving you a psychological boost. You feel like you're doing something, and you've in, you've endowed these pills with this magic power. There was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago, you can read about it at nature.com, that attributed more than half of a particular drug's benefit to the placebo effect. It was a study of a migraine drug, not a boner pill, but half of the the benefit of the drug they believed was the belief that the patient had in the power of the drug to alleviate their symptoms. And they had, you know, they, the patient took the drug thinking it would work, and so it worked. You take these pills thinking they're going to help your boners, and so they help your boners. Whether the pills are doing it or not, couldn't tell you. You could swap them out with... Flintstones children's vitamins for a while and see if you still get the same effect, but you might not. But if it's working and you only take it once in a while, you'd probably be all right. I don't know if these supplements have terrible side effects. Most supplements are not regulated by the FDA, unfortunately, because they're not actual drugs. They're just happy pills and sugar pills and, frankly, bullshit pills. But bullshit works for some people because of the placebo effect. Anyway, if I were in your shoes and when I took these over-the-counter herbal supplements, my dick worked, I would keep taking the over-the-counter herbal supplements. Since it works so well, 
you can half your dosage of the over-the-counter herbal boner pill supplements and see if your dick is still just as hard, and I bet you it will be. Because what I think is happening now is your dick works, and you no longer need the Cialis or the crutch that these boner pills represent. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from the South. I'm a gay male. And a little bit about me, I've been in two serious relationships. The first one was with a woman, and we got married when I was 21. And a few years later, I came out and we got divorced. And I've been with the same man since, and we've been together now for four and a half years. And we've been married two and a half years. Um, Basically, for the past, most of our relationship, I could say, it's been pretty rocky. And uh, the sex kind of died after we had been together for about less than a year. And we've had lots of fighting and arguing during most of our relationship. And I'm at a point now where I think I'm ready to leave the relationship, but I'm not 100% sure just because of my lack of long-term relationships in the past. And I wanted to see if you had any advice. Thanks. Uh, I'm calling you f- from the north. You're there in the south, you said in your your uh, message to me, right? Yes. Uh, I'm calling you from the north with some very important information, uh, something we okay. know up here, and it's the reason our divorce rates are so much lower in the north than they are in the south. You don't have to marry everybody you want to fuck. I know. <laughs> so, so that's that's my advice for you just from going in like okay so you married you got married to your wife um it, i guess because you were going to try to stay closeted all your life this is actually what a lot of people do who are gay in the south they try to like or gay you know and terrorized by religion or conservative yeah i, I never even met a gay person until way after i even got married so well there you go and so you did what the religious right and tony perkins would have you do you married a woman that didn't work out because you're going to be as gay as you are and then you met a guy, but then you repeated the like evangelical conservative background mistake of marrying him right away. Right. How, how long were you together with this dude before you married the dude? Um, we were together about two years. So you were together for two years. You got married at two years, even though at two years you hadn't had sex for a year? About six months of that, but we didn't have sex on our honeymoon. It was, I mean... <laughs> Ridiculous. Yeah, kind of ridiculous. Why did you marry him? Well, I I love him, and uh, I thought it would fix things. And and I've actually been going to therapy recently and learned some things about myself. That you know, marriage doesn't fix things. You know, with the the first wife and the the, the, the husband. <laughs> yeah, the, the the wedding the 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 marriage graveyard is packed with tombstones that said, "I thought marriage would fix things." Marriage doesn't fix things. It really doesn't. Right. You know, time actually can make whatever it is that isn't working worse. And if it's something that you can overlook or ignore, then it's not going to matter ultimately over the life of the relationship. If it's something you can't overlook or ignore or that gives, causes you great pain and it gets worse over the life of the relationship, the relationship will be destroyed. Right. So, And I don't need to tell you that now. You know that now. Just don't fucking get married again, all right? The next time your dick yeah. like, gets hard in the direction of another human being, you don't have to put a, a, a ring on it unless it's a cock ring, and you're going to take it off as soon as you're done. <laughs> well, we actually um, decided to separate two nights ago, and uh, we're still living together, trying to get arrangements to make things you know, as smooth as possible for both of us. So it's a little... 
exciting yet sad at the same time, but I I think it needs to happen. You know, it is sad. It is sad. And I don't mean to be glib and it is painful, but the mistake that a lot of people make, and sometimes I see gay men making this mistake, particularly young gay men from conservative or evangelical backgrounds will make this mistake, is that they've been told that lust is bad, that sexual desire is bad. And only when you elevate that lust or desire by saying it's love and I want to marry you and we're going to be together forever. And you sort of round up what is initially a lust attraction to a lifelong commitment too soon so that you're not guilty of base desire or just lust or fornication. We're not just fornicating. We're getting married. You you don't have to do that. You can wallow in lust and out of lust, love grows. Lust is the fertilizer. Love is the flower. But you got to give it some time to fucking grow before you know that that's a flower you want to fucking pick. My metaphor is running out of steam here. Right? Gotcha. So going forward, that's what you wanted. Advice going forward? I'm not going to put a ring on it. That's for sure. (laughs) Don't marry the next dude that you're into. Date, fuck, live together for a while. The reason the divorce rate is lower in Massachusetts than in any Bible Belt state is that people tend to marry later in life. People marry in their late 20s, early 30s, after they've fucked around a bit, after they've dated, after they've cohabitated one or two times, after they know themselves well enough to know who they get along with, who they want to be with, what type of person they can live with and, and would enjoy living with. You didn't know that either right. time you married. So just take your time. I will. I turned 30 in April, so um, I'm still not rushing anything at all. It's going to be very slow. Take it slow. It's a good thing to be 30 and single. I was 30 and single when I met Terry. So please don't, like some dumb gay man, regard 30 and single as life is over because it isn't. 30 and single is an awesome place to be. And 30 and single and wiser than you were in your 20s, that is a tremendously awesome place to be, and that's where you are. Good luck. Thanks. Hi, Dan. And Tech Savvy at Risk Shoes. I am a 24-year-old student in Boston, Massachusetts, and I am interested in donating some of my eggs to um, a reproductive uh, bank for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm not really sure if I myself want children. You know, I think that it would be nice to have somebody who can't have children, I'd like to be able to help facilitate that. Um, number two, as I said, I'm a student. I'm uh, working on my doctorate right now, so I've rocked up quite a bit of student loans. And number three, I think that, well, I'm not interested in surrogacy. I would love to help um, a gay couple, you know, donate genetic material necessary if they wanted a biological child. So my question is, you know, my partner, my Fiance now. He's totally okay with it. Really supportive. And I want to make sure I'm interested in this for the right reasons. I know the money is an important thing, but I don't want it to be the only reason why I would do this. I don't think that it is. But I'm having some trouble kind of sussing out my motivations. Is it wrong, number one, to stipulate on the donation form that I'm only really interested in donating aid to um, couples who don't have any children or can't have children or, um, same-sex couples, and um, number two, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, is there any other listeners out there who have done this and have regrets, who have done this and really are thankful that they did do it and found a lot of value in it? 
Joining me by phone to help field this question, Donna Rady. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Fertility Source Company, which is a for-profit egg donor and surrogacy agency uh, with offices up and down the West Coast. Um, so, uh, Donna, thanks for jumping on the phone. First, just more generally and broadly, what motivates most egg donors? I think the first interest is the money. You know, it, most uh, concept is that, you know, they can go in for a fairly easy amount and, and go in and, and have an egg donor fee of somewhere about $5,000 up to as much as 10000 So I think that's the first motivating factor until they learn more and, and realize it's not an easy thing to do. And what's, what's the difference between a $5,000 egg and a $10,000 egg? It's not the egg so much as the the process. Um, First-time egg donors are usually right around $5,000. If they um, wish to do more than one cycle, then their fee typically goes up each time. And so why are eggs uh, so much more expensive or uh, remunerative than than semen donations? A guy goes to a, a sperm bank to give sperm, and he gets, I think, bus fare and a Coke. <laughs> well, he also gets um, a five-minute movie, and he's done as <laughs> as opposed to three weeks of injections and a surgery and recovery time. Okay, so what is what is involved if you decide to to, to donate an egg? If someone's going to donate an egg, it's a, lo- a much longer, more complicated process than just a, a dude who's going to donate semen just going to rub one out in a tiny room. But a woman who donates an egg, what happens? They're going to um, undergo psychological evaluation. They're going to uh, attend a legal consultation because there's going to be an agreement, a legal agreement between the donor and the set of intended parents she's donating to. She's going to get medically screened, which um, includes vaginal ultrasounds, blood work, um, genetic testing. And then once she's deemed an appropriate uh, candidate for egg donation, she will synchronize, or the doctors will synchronize her cycle with the intended parent's menstrual cycle and or surrogate if it's getting um, transferred to a surrogate. And then she's going to go under um, about three weeks worth of hormone injections, daily injections. Um, during the two-week period, she's going to be going to doctor's appointments virtually every single day. And then the ex, um, egg extraction itself is a uh, surgery that's done with like twilight sleep and vaginally. They'll go in and take all of the eggs that they can um, get for that period cycle, which average, you know, anywhere from 12 to about 20. And so are those eggs then stored? They are. They are um, either stored as eggs or if she is donating to a direct couple, then they usually will go ahead and fertilize the eggs, creating the embryos, um, and then they'll be frozen from that point. Is it always the case that a, uh, an egg donor is matched with a couple who, who want a parent and, and, and want to buy her eggs in particular? Uh, or do some women just come in to donate the eggs that then are stored and along comes a couple six months or a year later to buy her frozen eggs? Right. Well, there's a transition in the industry right now. It used to be that they would come in um, based on a specific donor, excuse me, specific intended parent who's interested specifically in them. There's a change in the industry right now going towards egg banking where they will go in, um, participate with an egg banking cycle. They'll go to the clinic. They go through the same process except that they'll take the eggs and then are stored at the clinic to be used for future intended parents. Now, about those future intended parents, are donors allowed to say, I want my eggs to go to gay couples only or childless couples only? Are they allowed to place those kind of restrictions? What about restrictions like no interracial couples or only a Christian couple? 
Right. Um, you know, they can. I mean, they basically can do, do say whatever they want. However, you know, most girls who are going to donate their eggs are really, you know, doing it for um, altruistic reasons, not strictly the money. It's just too much of a process for just the money. Um, so, you know, if they're willing to help one type of person, why wouldn't they be willing to help another type of person? So, you know, most of the couples who we deal with are all having issues fertility-wise, um, you know, so they all need them. You know, obviously, same-sex couples um, need them regardless, so it, it makes it a little bit easier with them. But mm-hmm. my history is I don't see um, donors coming in and saying they only want, you know, same-sex couples or I only want single parents or that type of thing. If they're if they're willing to donate, they're usually willing to donate to anybody. But if a donor did come in and say, I only want gay couples to have access to my eggs, what would the answer, what would the response be from, from fertility source or some other company? I think we, we would, you know, try to educate them on, you know, our set of intended parents and, and what they're looking for and try to kind of get to the bottom of why they only want to donate to those type of people and, and try to educate them. But at the bottom line, you know, if they say I only want to donate to a certain type of person, we would try to, um, you know, agree to that. You would agree to that? Yes. And even if it was something patently offensive, like no black parents for my eggs? No. <laughs> you know, you know, it has to be, you know, somebody like our, our standard, I guess, is what we see the most of is we have intended parents, sorry, donors who are um, extremely religious. They don't particularly want to donate to a sex couple or they don't want to um, donate to a single parent. They feel, you know, it needs to be a man-wife type couple, in which case we try to say yes. Now, if they came to us and say, you know, my eggs can only be used for something that goes against, you know, the standard discriminations, we would just have to, you know, pass on them. So no racist, no white supremacist eggs, but homophobic <laughs> eggs are okay? You would, a, a woman be allowed to say, no same-sex couples for my eggs, but a woman wouldn't be allowed to say, I don't want an interracial couple or no Japanese parents? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, if we, if we start having some kind of limitations that these donors are going to want to put on eggs, you know, chances are we're not going to approve them for our program because they're not in it for the right reason. They're, they have to be in it for wanting to donate eggs, period, and not so much get tied up on who they're giving them to. No master race eggplants. Nobody come in <laughs> to, to breed Ubermensch? No, not at all. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> Donna Rady, Chief Operating Officer at Fertility Source Company. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Absolutely. Take care. We're going to take a break from your calls for just a second because we have a What You Got this week. What You Got is a regular segment where we invite on sex researchers, scientists to talk about their latest findings and what they're discovering and looking into. This week, we talked to a researcher in Alabama about a surprising upside, benefit, perk of herpes. So joining me by phone, Tyrell Smith, an immunology graduate student at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where he is doing research on brain tumor therapy and using, surprise, surprise, the herpes simplex virus to do it. So nobody wants herpes, right, uh, Tyrell? Oh, yeah. I mean... <laughs> but but you're, you're like uh, ankle... You're like uh, elbow deep in herpes every day. This is your field, your research. You're surrounded by herpes. Right, right, right. I work with it every day just about. And um, yeah, no, actually it, it's... Uh, some people do do really want herpes, and uh, those are um, patients who are um, undergoing um, experimental therapies uh, for uh, brain tumors. Now, 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 why are people who are undergoing experimental therapies for certain brain tumors anxious to get herpes? What is the link here? 
so, um, I mean, you know, uh, the brain tumors that I work on are glioblastomas, and those are very bad with, you know, life expectancy um, about like, uh, you know, maybe like two years after diagnosis. And, uh, and that hasn't changed a whole lot throughout history. And so that's why we need to work on, um, you know, some, some novel therapies. And um, one of which that I'm working on is using uh, herpes simplex virus type 1 that's been genetically modified to essentially eat away cancer and, um, and not harm, like, you know, your, your healthy uh, brain tissue. Okay, when I first heard about your work, I, I heard that we were treating brain tumors with herpes or that herpes offered some protection from brain tumors. That's not true. It's not like get herpes and you're immune to brain tumors. These are genetically modified herpes viruses that you're using to target a brain tumor? Yep, that's exactly it. And um, there's been uh, some uh, studies suggesting that prior infection with uh, herpes, the uh, the wild type that, you know, like the regular, the common cold sore and, and stuff like that, if you undergo this sort of like experimental um, therapy for treating a brain tumor, it might actually offer um, an advantage because then you have the immune system recognizing the virus and it makes it easier for the immune system to actually, you know, infiltrate the brain and, you know, start, start uh, you know, clearing out tumor cells as well because it's the virus that um, has this affinity for, for tumors. Crazy. You're blowing my mind. So, so all, all these people out there who, who walk around herpes feeling terrible and there's such a stigma attached to it and we fight that stigma on the show and in my columns a lot because people's fears about herpes are so overblown uh, when you look at the impact that herpes typically has in the life of the average herpes, quote-unquote, sufferer. But now people with herpes can look in the mirror and say, if I ever get this brain tumor... I'm in a better place, potentially when I go in for this experimental treatment. So there's, we've, we've identified one particular upside to herpes. Oh, yeah. No, and I mean, it, it's a really a great virus for uh, treating tumors, too, because, uh, I mean, the lytic nature of the virus, and whenever I say lytic, I mean its ability to, like, you know, cause the cells to just explode, because that's essentially what a cold sore is. It's like all of your cells are just exploding, and then the immune system has to come in and, like, you know, clear it out, and, and it's like this lytic nature of the virus that makes it great for um, killing cancer cells. And what we do with our virus is that we genetically modify it to where, um, in a normal, like, healthy individual, they get infected with uh, herpes, and a lot of times the cells will mount sort of like a natural defense against the virus. And, uh, and the virus is, is, has evolved to where it can, you know, counter this uh, natural immune response. Well, our virus can't counter that natural immune response. So, um, so but in cells that are like actively so, wait, so, proliferating and growing. So let me, yeah. let me, let me, let me get this straight. So you've taken this herpes virus, you've made it, you, you've rendered it incapable of responding or defending itself from the, your body's immune system response. And then it, it will automatically sort of gravitate toward the, you, you, you inject it into or put it next to the tumors. It infects the, the virus, infects the cancer cells, and then your immune system explodes the virus, killing the cancer cell. Well, no, the cancer cells—they're not phased by um, by this. Like, uh, they, 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 see, they don't want to. They don't want to mount this immune response because they—they just want to grow. That's all the cancer wants to do. It just—it's this, uncro- it's this um, uncontrollable growth, and so the virus just takes advantage of this of the cancer cells, like machinery and hops on and just proliferates like crazy. And the next thing you know, 
um, cancer cells are bursting and releasing more of this genetically modified virus that can then infect neighboring cancer cells. However, if any of this virus, like, um, gets caught up in, like, a healthy neuron, um, the neuron, like, mounts an immune response, and it's not dividing, and um, the virus can't go latent. And so what happens is, you know, the, the infection essentially stops whenever it infects like, healthy tissue. Oh my God, it's blow- only capable of growing in cancer cells. You're blowing my mind. This is like the ultimate stoned late night dorm room conversation topic. You must <laughs> make out like a bandit at parties. Right. No, I mean, yeah, it's great. I mean, uh, you know, although, you know, whenever whenever um, I go on dates with people and like, you know, shake their hands and stuff like that and tell them what I do in the lab all day, it's kind of like, <laughs> I don't know if, if, if I want to take you home tonight. Right. <laughs> so great is the stigma attached to herpes that even people who are just researching herpes to cure people of a particularly deadly cancer has to face, stare that stigma down. Yeah, I've given lots of people herpes over the years. It's been um, a really uh, rewarding um, experience for me. How do you mean when you say you've given a lot of people herpes? What do you mean by that? So, um, well, actually, I don't really give people herpes. I give them mice herpes in in, in hopes of uh, uh, curing their their tumors. But like I said, our virus has gone through um, several different like clinical trials, and every you know every they're 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 finding so much. There's so much research on uh, improving these viruses and, and improving their safety, their uh, efficacy. Now we're like throwing in different immune stimulating components to these viruses where they're, um, they're infecting cells and secreting these immune stimulating components that are um, aiding in, in the tumor clearance. So um, this is a really hot topic in uh, cancer research. And not only herpes is great for, uh, you know, cancer therapies as well. There's lots of different uh, viruses that are going around that are useful for uh, treating um, cancers. But my favorite is, is and the one that I work with, it's herpes. Tyrell Smith, immunology graduate student at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone for uh, this week's What You Got. All right. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. And what Tyrell has got is herpes. Back to your calls. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old guy calling from Canada here, and I uh, I have a question about having kids. I've been married for two years now, and uh, before my wife and I got married, we talked about having kids, and at the time, I thought I wanted them, but now I'm kind of thinking that maybe I don't. A lot of uh, fucked up stuff going on in the world. I have a little bit of anxiety kind of surrounding the future of the world, and I don't know whether or not the Fukushima plant's going to fall into the fucking ocean and destroy the world and stuff like that. And so I don't know if it's the right time to be having kids or if I should get checked out for some kind of anxiety issues surrounding my, I don't know, crazy apocalyptic thoughts. But um, I was also wondering if maybe you knew of any research that shows a person's desire to procreate could be fluid kind of like how you talk about on the podcast about how uh, throughout a woman's life, her sexuality can be a little fluid, you know, play on both sides of the field and, and still be, I don't know, their own person. And is this, is this something that's going to pass? Uh, is it, uh, is there a chance that uh, I still do want kids and, I don't know. I'm just terrified of having this conversation with my wife because it could lead down a road where she no longer wants to be my wife anymore. And uh, that would leave a hole in my life that I don't think I could ever fill again. So 
Uh, just looking for your thoughts. Having kids is scary. And then you have kids and it's sometimes scarier. And sometimes it's awesome. I always compare being a parent to being a heroin addict. When you're high, you've never been so fucking high. And when you're miserable, you regret ever sticking a needle in your arm in the first place. That said, the person you really need to talk to this about, about your misgivings and your hesitations and your concerns, is your wife. Because if you're not on the same page kids-wise, that's going to come out eventually and better sooner than later. And it would be really unfair of you to run out her fertility clock, to hem and haw and keep this from her until it's too late for her to have children, to tell her that you're thinking about it, you're not sure, you're not ready, if indeed you know that this is something you don't want to do. She has a right to that information and you have to give it to her. And who knows? Maybe in a conversation with your wife, your fears can be allayed. Maybe she has the exact same misgivings right now that you have and she's afraid to tell you because earlier when you guys first got together and got married, you were both wanting children and maybe she's decided now that she doesn't want children and doesn't know how to give you the bad news, uh, which won't be bad news because you're surprised, still on the same page, just an opposite page. So talk to the wife about it. As for those misgivings, you know, we just don't know how the story ends, right? There are no guarantees. Even in the happiest of times, you don't know where shit's going. Before the First World War, people kind of thought war was over, that it had been solved, that these stable nation states and the way Europe was arrayed and the glorious Austro-Hungarian Empire and all of it – had sort of solidified into a permanent state of peace and prosperity. You read stuff that was written before the First World War about international politics and it's so clueless about the carnage, the decades of carnage that was coming their way. So you just can't know. They're all having kids in 1910 thinking everything was awesome. And it was if you weren't a woman or a person of color, or gay, or a whole bunch of other things. But a lot of people were having kids thinking everything's awesome, and then everything got not so awesome pretty quick. So now that we're all like standing around thinking, oh my god, things aren't so awesome, that doesn't mean that things are going to fall apart any more than feeling awesome means that things are going to hang together. You have kids, and you shove them out into the world, and then you see what happens. And in the end, everybody dies. A hundred years from now, everybody who's alive now, is dead. Whether they had kids or not, whether they have grandchildren who survived them or not. And if you can handle the existential sort of terror of that, I don't know how you got out of bed in the morning, but you do. And so you can get out of the bed in the morning and parent. If you can get out of bed in the morning, not knowing how it's all going to, how today's going to turn out, an asteroid could fucking slam into the planet in the next 10 minutes before I even have time to upload this podcast or Nancy does, to the interwebs, an asteroid could slam into the planet and it could all be over. So why the fuck did I get out of bed? Why the fuck did I come to work today? Because we don't know if it's all going to be over today or tomorrow or the next day or 100 years from now. You just can't know. So you pretend that everything's going to be fine and you make your choices accordingly. And one of the choices I made, pretending that everything's going to be fine in the end, was to have kids. That's not a choice that you want to make or you're comfortable making. Don't make it. But... You got to tell the wife. You got to talk to the wife. You must. You must. If you don't talk to the wife, I'm going to track you guys down and I'm going to tell her. Hey, Dan and Texavi at Rescue. I am a 25-year-old straight female calling from rural New Mexico. And my story slash question is this. 
my college boyfriend and I went out for three years before I broke up with him because I'd fallen out of love with him. A little while after the breakup, we started hooking up and three and a half years after the breakup, that's still our arrangement when we're both single. Now, it's important to know that he initiates the majority of the sexual contact we have. And the reason that's important to know is because I think he's still in love with me. I think he never moved on. Now, Dan, I know you say not to flatter oneself, but take my word on this. So I'm afraid that every time we have sex, he can rekindle or hold on to this hope that we're going to get back together and we're not going to get back together. And I'm very explicit with him about that. I say in those words to him, we are not getting back together. So my question is, if he's still in love with me, which I believe he is, and if he's the one initiating the majority of the sexual contact, which he is, and if I've been relentlessly explicit that we are not getting back together, which I have been, and if we're both getting our sexual needs met in a safe and trusting environment that we might not otherwise have access to, which we are, am I ethically obligated to end this? I don't want to be responsible for the emotional violence that comes to him from the constant heartbreak that he might be experiencing. So do I take responsibility for protecting him emotionally or do I get to shrug and say he's an adult able to weigh the costs and benefits of the situation and able to deal with the hurt that he exposes himself to? What are my obligations in this situation? What an interesting problem. Do you have a moral obligation, having laid out everything that you laid out, do you have a moral obligation under the circumstances to decline the safe sex that you have with this guy, the, the, the sexual release and access that you enjoy with him, knowing, as you do, and I'm just going to accept your version of events, that this pains him deeply? And all I could think as I listened to your call was that you know that old metaphor about you, know, you touch the hot stove, you burn yourself touching the hot stove. How many times are you going to do that before you learn your lesson, right? Well, you're the hot stove and he keeps touching you and he keeps getting burned if indeed you are right and being intimate with you, it's emotionally traumatizing for him. And what are your obligations as the stove that he keeps touching? Well, you know, that's, it's not a perfect analogy because a stove is an inanimate object. A stove has no agency, has no moral imagination. A stove can't empathize, but you have a moral imagination and you have empathy and you have agency. And I do think that at a certain point, you have an obligation to stop fucking this dude if you know fucking you hurts him traumatizes him, perhaps leaves him in a state where he is incapable of forming a lasting bond with anyone else because he lives in hope since you're still fucking him whenever he calls, if you're single, that one day you two will just collapse into each other's arms again and it'll come back and you'll be a couple again. And if that's just never fucking going to happen and you believe sincerely and you seem to that the sex he has with you leads him to live in false hope then you're a thinking, breathing, sentient stove with agency who keeps burning someone. You have to take some responsibility for that. You're not, it's not just him touching you. It's you touching him back. You're like the stove that comes when you call, knowing that it's going to burn you. That's not okay. You have to act in his interest if he can't act in his own in this circumstance and stop fucking him when you're both single. 
it is kind of selfish of you to fuck him when you're both single, knowing that it burns him in a way that it does not burn you. And if he doesn't have the sense to stop touching you, you have to have the compassion and the integrity to stop touching him or stop letting him touch you. There are other fuck buddies in the world. He can find one. And so can you. Easier for you as a woman to find a fuck buddy than a man. But one of the reasons he may not be successful in his current relationships or all the relationships after you is this niggling sense that he has that maybe since you're still fucking him, you can get back together. I've already said that. I'm not going to repeat myself. Too late. I already repeated myself. Stop fucking the dude. All right? Knock it off. Hi, Dan. I... I am a 26-year-old gay male living in the Midwest. I have a question about etiquette, I guess, with exes and uh, boyfriends of exes. I uh, dated a guy when I was in college a couple years ago. Long story short, he was a total piece of shit, just very emotionally abusive, isolated me from my friends, my family, would freak out whenever I wanted to do something with uh, friends or or had to leave for like a family vacation or anything. He would threaten suicide at some points. Just yeah, just very unstable, very emotionally abusive. So needless to say, uh, parted ways with him, which was a great, absolutely needed to do that. Uh, moved to a different town. I have uh, a boyfriend I've been with for three years. I'm totally happy, uh, completely 180 from that relationship. My question, I guess, comes down to what to do. He's in a, another relationship with a guy, very young. He's about 19. My ex is 25. And I just, I see, just based on Facebook, what friends have told me, similar pattern, just being very emotionally abusive, threatening, going fits. It just it just really concerns me about how he's treating this this other guy. Most recently, he I saw on Facebook that he threw out this statement about how he was so alone and and abandoned. He couldn't believe that someone would do that to him. And this this boy, this teenage guy, responds that he's so sorry, but he had to go to this reception because he's the best man. So basically, my ex is emotionally blackmailing a, his boyfriend out of going to a rehearsal dinner for a wedding he's a part of. Um, and yeah, it's it just, it's, it's these signs that I, I see him repeating the same exact behavior repeated with me. And I, I just, I don't know what I should do. I mean, should I just leave it alone or do I reach out to this, this new boyfriend? That's what I really want to do. I just want to write him a letter or an email or something and just tell him, wait it out, wait it out for someone else. You don't have to be in a relationship with this guy just because you, you think he's the only one around. Yeah. I just, I don't know if I should just butt out or if I should try to intervene and at least impart some wisdom that I learned from that relationship. God, another hard one. I want to tell you to mind your own business. It's not your relationship. I bet with that exchange on uh, Facebook with, oh, the, what was me abandoned and him going, I had to go to the fucking rehearsal dinner, that the 19-year-old is wising up to the bullshit uh, and the game that your ex is playing. On the other hand, if I were that 19-year-old oh, or in a relationship with somebody who was abusing me and I couldn't see it, I'd want somebody to nudge me, somebody who knew, even an ex, to say something. The risk 
to you, though, is you say something, you send an email, and he forwards it to his boyfriend, your ex-boyfriend, and all of that anger and rage and bullshit and drama comes flying back at you. It doesn't sound like your ex is violent. It sounds like he's one of those bullshit, takes himself hostage, emotional manipulator types. Like, oh, you're going to go out, oh, woe is me, and so distraught, not pounding you, isolating you by manipulating you with his misery, right? So you might write that email and it doesn't sound like the risk is that your ex-boyfriend is going to boil your bunny and burn your house down. He just might feel terrible and who gives a shit? He should feel terrible. He sounds like a piece of shit. So the risk to you isn't as great as it could be but still you would be potentially inviting a lot of drama and chaos into your life. All that said, years ago when I was young and gay and out in Chicago, I was dating this guy and it was okay but he was crazy jealous and I was always you know, in the wrong somehow and I'd always done something wrong. He was always mad at me and I just felt terrible all the time. And I met an ex-boyfriend of his and started unloading on him about, oh my God, you know, what am I doing wrong? And he looked at me and said, has he hit you yet? And it all clicked into place. Like, oh, I'm in an abusive relationship. This is what's coming if I stick around, right? And I looked at him and said, he hit you? And he's like, yeah, he hit me. That's, and I was like, oh, and then I broke up with him. Then it was over. And I was like, oh, oh, of course, everything fell into place. Thank God that guy said that to me. I was really grateful that he said that to me. Maybe that 19-year-old would be really grateful if you said it to him. Or the 19-year-old could blow up at you and think you're trying to monkey wrench his relationship with your ex because you're jealous and angry and you miss his ex somehow and you want him back. You never know where a 19-year-old's going to go with that kind of information. There's just so much potential for drama here and unexpected drama coming at you in unexpected ways. The 19-year-old could be mad at you, could blow up at you. Your ex could come after you. But I believe in accountability. And I think that people should sometimes err on the side of sharing this sort of information to protect others. And I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to tell you what I would do if I were in your situation. I would do what that guy did for me a long time ago. And I would say something. I wouldn't involve myself. I wouldn't insert myself. I wouldn't get in too deep, but I would say something. Maybe an email. I dated him for a while. Be careful. Maybe he's getting better, but these kinds of isolating behaviors, da-da-da-da, signs of abuser, I felt abused, I got out. There are other men out there. Maybe that's what he needs to hear. Somebody needs to say it to him. But it's a risk. You're taking a risk when you say that to him. There could be blowback. Your call. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old woman calling from the Midwest, and I want your opinion on where the line is between leading someone on and possibly being open to romantic feelings with someone. I met a guy at my friend's New Year's Eve party. He's one of her really good friends and we had a super good time. Um, I came away thinking, yay, a new guy friend. And uh, he asked me out the next day. So we've been out on a date and I can't say the vibe was one way or another, friends or romantic, but I know he's interested in me romantically and I'm just not sure. So is it, wrong to let him take me out a few more times so I can decide if I could be attracted to him. I really don't. He's a great guy. I don't want to leave him on and I just want to do right by the dating community and not make him feel like he's been abused. But I also don't want to cut something off that could be great um, just because initially I didn't think of him in the romantic way. I'm going to be uncharacteristically quick with this one. The tech savvy at risk youth are looking at me like they don't believe it. Let me prove it. I'll try to do it in under 30 seconds. Oh, it's already 30 seconds in. Um, 
there are two forces here that you have to balance, two opposing complaints in the dating land, which is you don't want to lead somebody on. People get mad when they feel like they've been led on. But you got to give them a chance. People get mad when they feel like they weren't given a chance. So you say you're not sure. So long as you are not sure. And it sounds like you're open to potentially there could be an attraction, maybe, if you got to know them a little better, that there might be some spark that has yet to be uncovered or fanned into a flame. So go out on a couple more dates. That's fine. That's giving him a chance. That's not leading him on. Once you know it ain't going to happen, can't happen, won't happen, going out on those dates, that's leading him on. But right now, go ahead. Give the dude a chance. I'm calling in regards to episode 377 and the woman who had this unfortunate experience where she had a one-night stand and the guy came and then basically kicked her out, i.e. would not follow through and do the gentlemanly, the human thing and and get her off as well and left her feeling uh, very strange and sort of used. Well, there's. I thought your answer was excellent. However, I think you left out 50% 50% of the equation, at least for men. I don't know if this ex- is experienced by women or not, but I've come to believe that with from my own experience that men can have what's called, what I've come to call a naked kiss, where you're, everything's going great and you're into the person until you have your orgasm, the man's orgasm. You come and then you just feel like, in addition to all those deflated feelings that you des- described and all the exhaustion, you just feel like, oh, that was a mistake. I'm not into this person. I don't want to be here. I wish this person wasn't here. It's happened to me. And uh, it's not pleasant, but I think it's possible that that can happen. Now, I think, again, I think the gentlemanly thing to do is to swallow those feelings, feel pardon the metaphor, and get the other person off. But I do think that it can happen. And uh, I don't think it's a good thing, but I think it's a possibility that the person was simply not into her. Hi, I was just listening to episode 377, um, and I was thinking, listening to the call where you're talking to the man with all the information about, like, Facebook data and stuff about gay men um, and gay people in America and where they live. I just want to point out something, Dan. You said, well, people who don't stay in the closet, am I wrong for thinking they're stupid? And you had this conversation about it, but what was not brought up is not everybody can afford to move. I live in a state that's not terribly shitty. I'm not gay. I'm straight. And I've been trying to move to the East Coast for two years paying out student loans, and I owe my mom rent money. I can't even pay my own mother for living with, to live with her at a reduced rate, let alone move to the East Coast. So the idea that people who are in the closet and their shitty states are just lazy or, like, stupid or whatever is very classist. I don't think you're thinking about all the reasons why it'd be difficult for somebody to get up and move, especially especially if you're gay and you can't explain to your family why you need to move and why they, you need their support because you're in the closet. It's great if you have money and you can move to the West Coast or the East Coast, but... Everyone else in the middle needs to keep working marriage equality, which I know you believe in, and probably not making fun of people for being too poor to be able to be their true self. So, um, love your show, though. Bye. Hi, Dan. Calling regarding the guy in episode 377 that was having a hard time watching his girlfriend dance with other women. I just wanted to say that what he's going through is really common. It's normal in ballroom and swing dancing to dance with other people. And I think what happens is more than just having to, uh, your girlfriend find someone else more desirable and vice versa. Uh, because when this happens, uh, you have to watch your girlfriend dance with other guys, and she might be really having a good time. These guys might be better dancers or taller. Or, but it, you're right, it's irrational, it's really common, but it creates this kind of uh, humiliating, cuckolding type experience. So my recommendations for this guy is 
definitely keep dancing. Uh, don't take a month or two off. If you do that, you're just going to deny your girlfriend from doing something she likes, and she's just going to dump your ass. So keep it up. Number two, communicate. She deserves to know how you feel. Number three, you're just going to have to dance with other girls. It's normal, and that's the main way you're going to get around this. I would go so far, create a new rule. When you show up at a bar, you're not allowed to dance with your girlfriend until you've had one dance with another person. Something to consider. And definitely uh, take some lessons. Uh, typically, the women by far outnumber the men. So what happens is the girls have to dance with each other, pair off with each other. One of them plays the male, male role. So if you show up as a single guy at a group lesson, they're going to be all over you. Um, they're going to love you. You're going to dance with so many women, your head will be spinning. And we're going to leave it there. But before we go, we want to remind you that we're having a very special live taping of the Savage Lovecast at Seattle's Neptune Theater on Valentine's Day, February 14th, with special guest Caitlin Doty of Ask a Mortician, Portland-based comedian Christine Levine, live music from the Wet Spots, other treats, and special guests. For information about tickets so you can join us for this live taping, go to strangertickets.com. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow the Seattle Seahawks on Twitter at Seahawks. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having